Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast and I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Karen Heenan Davis who is a book blogger based in Wales. In fact, I think Karen might be the first guest on the podcast from Wales flying the flag for the country. Karen began her book blog, Booker Talk, Adventures in Reading just over eight years ago and her motivation being to read all of the Booker Prize winning novels from the very first one that was announced back in 1969. And that's a project that she finally completed last year. The blog has continued to go from strength to strength and expand beyond the Booker Prize winners to become a journal of Karen's reading, as well as a platform to promote writers and publishers in Wales. Karen was previously a newspaper journalist for many years, reporting on everything from murder to industrial disputes and political intrigue, with the occasional and hated foray into sports, so no sports chat on this episode of the podcast. She then moved into public relations, working in local government, higher education, and then a multinational chemical company. She retired four years ago. Karen, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Hi there. Thanks for having me. And I'm absolutely thrilled to know that I'm the first guest from Wales. I mentioned there just briefly in the, the introduction that if people go onto your, your website, bookertalk.com, you know, there is a section where you are very much active in promoting writers and publishers from Wales. I take it that's very, very important to you. Yeah, and it's something really I, I only came to appreciate a few years ago when I was chatting to an author um, from Wales called Alice Hawkins. And she had written this fantastic historical crime fiction series based in, in rural Wales. I said, well, why isn't this better known? And she was telling me that one of the frustrations was that she would go to a publisher or to an agent and they would really love the concept of the book. But then to her amazement, they said, oh, but if only it wasn't set in Wales, can you move it somewhere else? Can you set it in England? And that really alarmed her. And it kind of alarmed me as well that there was this attitude towards writers from Wales that somehow, you know, these weren't going to be acceptable to, to people from other parts of the world or even from other parts of the UK. She and a few other authors then kind of went on to form Crime Cymru, which is like a, a group of authors all trying to support each other. Um, they're all from Wales, or maybe they've been born here, maybe they've kind of moved here, but they're all trying to advocate for Welsh writing. In fact, they just had a really successful online crime festival um, in Wales, and they're going to do it in person next year. So I thought, well, what can I do to help change this perception and this attitude? So hence why I, I try to do that on the blog. Because I was quite curious, and I've, I've mentioned this a few times on the podcast of my experience of growing up in Scotland and Scottish education. Thankfully, I think it's changed now, but at the time we were given very little of any Scottish literature. So I discovered lots of it once I'd left school. We met other people and got recommendations. I wonder what your experience of going through Welsh education would have been. Would that have been similar where you weren't really given books written by people from your own background, your own country? Absolutely. That was the, you know, I don't remember ever throughout my entire life in school being given a book that was by a Welsh author. 
or even hearing anyone beyond Dylan Thomas. I mean, and he wasn't even kind of on the curriculum or none of it was ever mentioned. So you get this classic of Welsh fiction, which is a, a collection of tales and it's called the Mabinogion. And it's a whole series of kind of mythical tales, if you like, a bit like you know, King Arthur style. It wasn't on the syllabus, never discussed about. And so it wasn't until I became like, you know, a young adult that I started finding out about these people myself. And yeah. I don't understand why it was suppressed in such a way. I mean, I don't even know. I'm guessing Scotland would be similar, that it was just kind of consumed or subsumed by that, the English literature canon, which is very much English-based. And I think it's important for people in Scotland, whether you're a reader or a writer, to be aware of your own culture and your own kind of history of your own country's literature. And as I say, I think it's a lot better up here than I'm hoping that through work of, of writers in Wales, but people like yourself, that's evolving and, and improving as well down in Wales. What would kind of interest me, and I, you know, I don't know this, I, I'm just guessing, whether that's changed and whether now youngsters coming through the education system in Wales now, whether they are in exactly the same situation that I was, or are Welsh writers now being included more in, in English classes, etc. I get the feeling that it's not because some of, the, some of the teachers I talk to and I ask them what's on the syllabus, etc. Very rarely a Welsh author's name will will come to light and that is so depressing it's such a strange and frustrating thing because i can think of writers scottish writers off the top of my head who have been influenced by fellow scottish writers because they were given books written in a language that they they understood and of a background and a culture that they could relate to and seeing yourself in literature it's the same as if you see yourself in films or tv it's a completely different thing you relate to it and then you, you also think I could do that because someone else from my background has done it before me. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the whole kind of question of relatability, I think, is, is really important. You know, that you get it, don't you, that, that you might, like as a, as a young person, when you haven't had an experience of the world, you know, you might discover through fiction someone who's going through that exact same range of emotions. And then you feel, oh, wait, you know, what I'm feeling isn't that unusual. There's somebody who's been there before and this is how they dealt with it. And it could be things that they are not able to talk about to, you know, to their friends or family. But through fiction, it gives them that kind of means of understanding their emotions. But if they can't relate to it because it doesn't come from their background, it doesn't speak to them, then that kind of is such a, a sad thing. Because I've, I've told the story many times in the podcast, my son is not a, a massive reader. Uh, that's an understatement. He just, he just doesn't like books at all. But I had bought him a book called The Young Team by a, a Scottish writer called Graham Armstrong. He read it at Christmas, I think because it was in a language that he understood, but it was talking about things, because Graham Armstrong, I think, is roughly the same age as my son, and it was so relatable. He read it and absolutely loved it. I mean, he's not become a, a prolific reader, but I think just finding that right book, just kind of going to what you're saying, is that people suddenly see things in those pages that they want to engage with. But, you know, today... If I kind of went into Cardiff, which is the capital city of Wales, for, for anybody who's not familiar with the geography, there's really only one bookshop now left in the city, one of the big chains. They do have a section on Welsh literature, but it's very small in comparison to anything else. So even the book industry itself isn't kind of helping, you know, when people are not being able to go into a shop and browse and find somebody who says, oh, this is interesting. I didn't know this author before. Some of the independents do probably a better job. 
but obviously, you know, they're, they're kind of small in terms of how much they can stock and how much they can give shelf space to. I don't know the answers, but... I, I just think as publishers, for me, they should look even... Obviously, to Scotland, there's a real vibrancy about Scottish literature and loads of really brilliant Scottish writers coming through. I think you look to Ireland as well and that kind of confidence in their own writers and to promote it. So if those two countries are part of that kind of the Celtic triangle are doing it, then logic would suggest that there's actually some great Welsh writers that maybe just need to be given the platform or just are waiting to be uncovered. I think it was the National Library of Wales partnered up with a Welsh publishing company called Partinan. And they started to go back into some of the classics, if you like, from, from the past that had gone out of publication. And so there's now about 50 of those, you know, all in this one collection. So if you just sort of read that, that would give you a re- really great sense of the kind of literature from the past. But when I look at it, there was hardly any names that I recognised. So that kind of showed me that even my own understanding was very limited. And, you know, here I am living in the country. So what hope is there of somebody in Essex or Kent or Glasgow picking up these books? Pretty slim because the names are just not recognised. Well, hopefully we'll do a wee bit today to, to fly the flag for Welsh literature. Okay, we'll try. <laughs> In the course of the podcast, you know, we'll have a chat as well about, you know, I mentioned how the kind of project originally came about for reading or wanting to read all the, the Booker Prize winners, which again is something I've mentioned that I've sent my head to try and work my way slowly but surely through them. But if I, you know, the whole point of the podcast is also to take you on the literary journey of your life and I always like to take people back to their childhood and ask you for your favourite book from childhood and the one that you've chosen is Here Lies Our Sovereign Lord by Jean Plady. What was it about that book that stood out for you? When you can ask me the question, you know, I had to sort of really dig into my, my memory. And I'm not like a lot of people whose biographies you read where they seem to have this perfect memory of their childhood. You know, they can remember things that happened to them like when they were three years old or something. And I'm thinking, I can't remember anything. So I know I read a lot from when I was a child. You know, I, I learned to read really at an early age and I just consumed books. So like loads of other people, I went through the whole Enid Blyton collection, you know, and I, or I do remember enjoying you know, all the famous five and secret seven and things, but the ones that really I loved the most were the, the boarding school series, because they all seemed to have so much fun in school, much more fun than we ever had in our school. <laughs> but I know I enjoyed them, but I can't remember anything about them they all just mush into one in a sense. So the, only, the first book I can truly remember reading and selecting for myself was this, this book by Jean Plady, which is historical fiction. It was a book that I was introduced to by uh, a girl from my class, and we used to walk together to school, and we just got chatting about things, and she told me, oh, you've got to read this. And it was all about Charles II, who you know was quite a rogue. He was always kind of chasing after women while trying to deal with plots against him to throw him off the throne and, and so on. So that was much more fun than anything we were doing in history in school. You, know, you compare that to uh, what we were doing, or oh, the repeal of the Corn Laws and the South Sea Buzzle and very heavy political stuff. And that just didn't light my fire at all. But this book did. How accurate it was, I had no idea. But it was just really entertaining. And And then we kind of, this friend and I, we would kind of start buying all her other books and start chatting to them as we were going to school. 
And I went through all of them and I went, then she had another series, I think, which was about the Tudors and she had the Plantagenets. What I didn't learn until probably quite recently was that that was a pseudonym. And, you know, she'd written gothic kind of romances as well under a different pseudonym, but she actually had five different pen names. And she was writing well into her 80s. My kind of interest in her changed. I've never lost the love of historical fiction, but it's decades since I read any Jean Plady. <laughs> you know that way it's funny, because I, I, I'd never heard of either Jean Plady, but obviously when I was just doing the research and kind of just what you were saying, I suddenly stumbled upon the fact that she had all these different pseudonyms, she wrote all these different types of genres. I think she wrote the best part of 200 books and sold about 100 million copies. I think the Jean Plady books sold about 14 million on their own. And it's only when you read those figures you think, how on earth have I never even heard of her? Even if I haven't read any of the books, because that's a phenomenal output that she produced over, as you say, you know, she wrote, I don't know when she's, what age she was when she wrote her first book, but she was writing from the majority of her life, but really, really some uh, amount of books that she did actually produce. She was phenomenal. It was like a production factory, I think, in the sort of like the 50s and 60s. But I think she... She didn't start writing historical fiction. I can't remember what it was now that she started off, you know, what sort of genre. And then she talked to either an agent or a publisher, and they were the ones who said, well, write something that is going to be more saleable. So that's when she started off on the, the historical fiction. Yeah, there were some of the names that I recognised. I think she also wrote under the name of Victoria Holt. And I can't remember the others. But there were about three that was like, never, ever heard of her. Because I was reading, she obviously, in order to produce all these books, then she had a she had a very strict regime. Again, it's quite admirable. She, she obviously approached writing as a career, as a job, and would sit and, and work for hours on end and produce every single day. And I think, obviously, once she, she got successful, apparently she took a world cruise every year. That was part of her, because she actually, I think she actually died when she was on a cruise, because she's buried at sea, apparently, which, again, is just a, a, a strange fact. But she, even when she was on holiday, and she wrote, I think, it might have been those Victoria Holt books that you mentioned, because it didn't need so much research that she just, when she was on this cruise ship, she was always writing, hence the reason why she wrote so many books. I, I think she did die on a cruise, and because I remember looking at it, and the, it wasn't even clear where she had died. It was somewhere between one of three countries. Yeah, she's buried at sea. And I think there's a memorial to her somewhere, but a phenomenal output for someone. What age would you have been then when you read Here Lies Our Sovereign Lord? I think I was in first year grammar school, so I would have been 11. So you could kind of say it was my first adult book in a sense, you know, because up until then I'd been reading primarily things aimed at children. This was like the, the watershed moment, if you like. And it was a significant year because that was the year I also discovered Shakespeare. Because <laughs> we remember having a, an English class and, and the book was Macbeth. And I just kind of grabbed it because by the time we had the second lesson, I could repeat the whole of the first scene word by word. And I'd never set out to do that. But it obviously had such resonance with me that you know, I'd, I'd kind of just completely taken it in. The other thing that was interesting about Here Lies a Sovereign Lord, again, just a wee bit of research, there was a, a line in it where it said, uh, and again, I don't know if it's just anecdotal, that it was common for girls at that time to read those books and history lessons while hiding behind their proper textbooks. Again, I've told this story where we did that when we, there used to be a thing called 
can't remember what it stands for, but it's SRA. It was a kind of reading thing that we did in Scottish schools, and it was different levels of reading and comprehension. And we used to get the wee commando war comic books and put them in between the, the SRA books to read and then get caught and, and were given the belt. Obviously, it was corporal punishment at the time. I can't say I ever remember doing that. <laughs> You're too, obviously too studious in sticking to the actual textbooks. I don't know. It was probably because I was kind of you know too busy reading them at home that I didn't take them into, into class with me or anything. Yeah, It's probably just an indication then of the, the popularity of them and bringing historical fiction to people who maybe otherwise wouldn't have read history books, I suppose. Well, yeah, because, you know, like lots of people find history boring, but it's often, I think, the way that they are exposed to it, you know, it becomes this dry series of facts and figures. But history is made by people. And if you can focus on the sort of like the people involved and, and make it more of a story, then you're more likely to grab somebody's interest and attention than if you were just to have told me all about, you know, Charles II, why he came to the throne and all the trees and plots against him. I said, yeah, 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 yeah. But, you know, what I really wanted to know was him and this actress, the kind of the hotspot. <laughs> I, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that's, that's maybe why historical fiction is always so popular, because it kind of, I suppose it fleshes out these characters rather than just dates and events. Absolutely. And I don't think that I had really had any experience of the sort of Tudor and uh, Stuart period or the Civil War period in England up until then. But it got me really interested, you know, and that became one of my, my favourite periods of, of history. You know, I kind of followed that through into my, at the time were called A-levels, I've no idea what they're called now, and on into university as well, you know, and I still read it. So the Hilary Mantel trilogy was just magical for me. That's the perfect example, I suppose, of what we're talking about. Well, I mean, she, she's kind of, to me, sort of changed the, the way that historical fiction is going to be done in the future. It was such a, a landmark kind of achievement. Not easy books to read. In fact, I, I was so keen to get the, the last one, The Mirror and the Light, that I ordered it in advance and I picked it up. And that was the last time I went into a bookshop before the lockdown happened. And it took me almost entirely the whole of the first lockdown to read it. <laughs> and not because it was, was, wasn't interesting me. It was. But A, it was huge. So it was really heavy to hold. It was like 600 pages and this heavy hard work. But also because it's so intense that I find I, I just couldn't concentrate for longer than about 20 pages before I would start losing. Well, who's talking now? What, what period of time are we in? Was that now? Was it 20 years ago? I would just get lost. So that became memorable because it was a lockdown book. (laughs) Yeah. Was it worth it in the end? Oh, absolutely. Even though you know what the ending is because it's, you know, it's about a a real life character. So you know what happens to him and, you know, he falls foul of the king and he gets executed. So although you know that's going to happen, she still creates this element of tension where you're hoping it's not going to happen. And, and what an achievement that is. If I can take you on from your favourite book from childhood to your kind of favourite teenage formative years student read, and the book that you've chosen is Middlemarch by George Eliot. And it's a book that's obviously made a lasting impression on you. Yeah, it has. I mean, I class this as my desert island book because I can read it and reread it and reread it and find something new in it each time. 
but I came across it at university. Most of the books on the syllabus, yeah, I can remember reading them, but I can't tell you anything about them because we were having to read them so fast that you never had time to really absorb them before you, know, you had to read the next one and the next one. But I do, rem- I do have this strong vision of sitting in my, my room uh, in a hall's residence, reading this and just being completely captivated by it. I've kind of gone on to read it so many other times since then and to recommend it to other people. I take it you studied English literature then at university? Well, initially I went off to university to study law and having worked my socks off to get the grades and everything, I discovered that I absolutely hated the law (laughs) or at least the way it was taught. It was so boring. So I, I switched to something, you know, I did enjoy far more, which was a, a combination of English literature and history. And also, I was curious, you know, you, you obviously got your book blog. There's always so many books in the world still to be read, but do you do a lot of rereading, or is it just certain books like Middlemarch that you would go back to to read again and again? I don't do anywhere near the level of rereading that I used to do. So it's because there's always so many new books that I could be choosing ones that I could read for the first time. And it's not necessarily this case of, you know, the shiny new objects, but you always have this feeling, well, there's this book that could be my next great love affair with this author or this big discovery that I've yet to make. So there is that tension. I would love to reread more, but and, and I did actually have at one time a shelf in the bookcase where I would put books thinking, right, I want to reread that. I don't want to give that one away. And after a few years, I looked at that and I thought, I don't know why I'm keeping these. Seriously, am I going to reread this book? Most of them got given away. Just even on that point, because obviously this is just an audio podcast, but behind me, I've got the, the kind of classic bookshelf pack full of books. And I am always loath to, to give, I, I kind of like to keep them. But probably to an extent, if I had to get through and was really honest in the bookshelves, there's probably loads that I will, I will never read again. But I still am reluctant to give them away. Well, yeah, but you can always get them again. <laughs> That's true. That is true. <laughs> you know, I kind of figured if I if I really wanted to reread something that I had given away, well, I could buy it again. They're not extortionately expensive. Or I could get it from the library. But if I didn't get rid of some books, then I wasn't going to have any space to store all the new ones. Because I think as well for people who love books, there's almost like two separate things of the joy of reading I think sometimes the joy of just buying books and getting new books, that in itself is a pleasure. No, if my husband were here, he'd be kind of rolling his eyes. My so wife's the exact same. <laughs> because he says that I cannot walk down a street or go anywhere where there are books and not look at them. It's just impossible. So if I, you know, sometimes you go to a hotel and they might have like a little bookcase there, you know, I will make a point of going and looking what are on those shelves. I think that's a very natural thing to do. But then the temptation to buy is very strong as well. One of the things that I discovered through, through blogging is there are so many authors I've not heard of before and that I've been introduced to by other bloggers and also authors from countries that I've not read before that I kind of discovered that my reading was very much confined to you know, the sort of the English-speaking world, if you like, and, and the big countries, you know, apart from the UK, obviously, you know, Canada and America. 
And I started to think about how could I broaden my horizons? So I started this project some years ago where I, I kind of said, right, I'm gonna read 50 books from different countries in the world. Whenever I traveled for work, I would ask my colleagues in those countries, tell me about a book from your country, but something you think that I should really read, you know, that maybe you did in school or you think is just outstanding. And I would sort of build a list of recommendations from that. And, and that has been tremendous because it's introduced me to authors, particularly from some of the African countries that I wouldn't have had experience of before, plus Asia. I mean, I think that is a great idea. As you say, just broadening your literary horizons. Can I give you a recommendation from Scotland then? Yeah, you can. I've got my pen ready. <laughs> this is the book that I recommend to everyone. It's, it's my favourite Scottish novel. It's a book called The Cone Gatherers by Robin Jenkins. And why do you recommend that? Part of the reason is, going back to what we were saying earlier on, that it's a book that I came to when I was in my mid-twenties working and it was somebody who'd recommended it to me. And I, when I read it, I thought it's a stunning book. I, I think the story itself is absolutely stunning and it's one of those books that I've reread but it goes back to that idea of I think why wasn't I taught that at school for me it's a classic of Scottish literature and people going through Scottish education should know about he's, he's probably he's one of our greatest kept secrets I think Robin Jenkins he's written loads and loads of novels I think he's maybe not as well known as he should be that's always been a frustration of mine so I'm kind of evangelical about that book and I should really qualify that by saying slightly judgmental if people don't have the same wonderful reaction to it, just to forewarn you. Okay, and don't tell you if we don't like it. Exactly, that's, that's probably the best thing to do. There was one thing when I was just having a wee check at, at Middlemarch, and it was one of the things that I stumbled upon that Michael Gove, when he was Education Secretary, had at the time when they were trying to, what they would say is improve standards and go back to the kind of the basics of education in terms of literature and English and he gave a speech where he cited the benefits of reading and studying Middlemarch as opposed to the Twilight series which was obviously very popular at the time and I mean my starting point would be if Michael Gove says anything I would take the opposite view uh, just as a matter of course but I think it, there was a kind of literary snobbery to what he was saying and especially for teenagers and I've spoke to people who would have read the Twilight series when they were teenagers or who are prolific readers of wide-ranging literature now but it's those books that establish them as lovers of literature and lifelong readers so the idea that you would dismiss say one's better than the other and dismiss one I thought was a ridiculous idea yeah it is I mean you know anything that gets people to read is good in my view because once they start getting into a reading habit I think they will progress into you know the more what do they say? Books that are more acceptable to, to certain politicians and, and people of that ilk. But trying to thrust, you know, middle march onto a 15-year-old, you're not to a hiding for nothing in many cases. They just can't find any way of connecting with it at all. And one of the guests, previous guests in the podcast, is a friend of mine. He's a guy called Professor Willie Mealy, who is a, a lecturer at Glasgow University. And he always goes on about this one of his pet hates is, is literary snobbery, that actually people can be very dismissive of either certain types of books or certain genres because they're not seen as worthy or that they just haven't read them, so they don't know. Yeah, it's like all those lists that you get, isn't there? You know, 1,001 books you should read before you die. It's like, why is that word should in there? Why make it feel like an obligation? It should be a pleasure. 
you know, here's 1,001 books that are deemed to be, you know, the best of their ilk, if you like. That's okay. But to tell me that I should read something, it's almost like I want to go the reverse and say, no, I'm never going to read that one just because you've told me I've got to read it. One last thing, and this appeals again to me as somebody who was a teenager in the 1980s, that there was a, a band in the 1980s, The Smiths, who I was a big fan of. And I didn't realise this again until I was doing the research that one of their most famous songs called How Soon Is Now has a line, which is that I am the son and heir of nothing in particular, which is a kind of acknowledgement. And it's a line from Middlemarch, which I didn't, I didn't realise. So I'm quite impressed at that. Well, I'm impressed because I've read that book, oh, I must be about 10 times now. I've never come across that line before. <laughs> You'll be scouting through it now. I'm going to have to read it again now just to find that one line. And then you can go and listen to the song as well. I have come across a lot of people who try to read Middlemarch and say, oh, I can't get into it. And I say, well, go back, have another go, but think of it almost like a soap opera and you know, focus on one or two of the characters and see how George Eliot is portraying these ambitions that they have and how they start off with these grand visions of what they're going to achieve and they're going to really make their mark on the world. And then she shows how that gets pushed aside by other factors. So you could just approach it like that, or you could look at it, how she treats marriages, because she's got some different couples in there, you know, what's the nature of their marriage and their relationship. So there's different ways of getting into the book, rather than thinking you have to start at page one and, and it immediately kind of will resonate with you. There's a reason why that book is on the, the reading list for so many university courses it's because it is probably the most outstanding example of the realism genre that exists but it is a hard book in the sense of trying to unravel it if you if you're trying to approach it from an academic perspective but if you kind of take a step back and look at it just from a tale about people and their interrelationships how society different parts of society connect with each other it becomes an easier take I think. You are listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddehy, and my guest is the book blogger, Karen Heenan-Davis. And Karen, we are on to the third book choice. That is a book that you recommend to anyone. Always a difficult question for any reader. And you've given me a book by Richard Flanagan called The Sound of One Hand Clapping, which is a brilliant title. And is this a book that you have recommended to a lot of people in the past? I have recommended it a few times, yeah. And, and yeah, you're right. This was a really difficult question because people's reading tastes are so different. So to find something that was going to suit anyone was a tall order. But this one I came to because one of his later books did win the Booker Prize and became one of my favourite Booker Prize winners. And that one was called The Narrow Road to the Deep North. You know, I loved that book so much. Then I started to kind of look at some of his back catalogue, if you like. And The Sound of One Hand Clapping is based in Tasmania and starts in the 1950s, but then has some sections which are kind of, you know, more modern day, if you like. It's really about this couple who leave Slovenia because of some atrocities that have happened, you know, in that country. And they, they want to make a new life. So they go to Tasmania and he gets a job on this huge construction site 
when they're building hydroelectric dams but it's a really harsh environment and she just can't take it and one day just walks out of their home into the blizzard is never seen again and leaves behind this three-year-old daughter and so the rest of the novel is about how father and daughter have to try to to deal with that loss and what it means to their relationship the psychological depth of that novel is tremendous because it shows them that they love each other but sometimes they hate each other and they you know they end up getting into to really difficult spaces then the question becomes can they become reconciled in the future it's just a fantastic novel and you know i i learned quite a lot about tasmania that i didn't know before never knew that they had those huge projects or that they were using refugee labor to create them so i think it's it's a tale about kind of despair and loss and you know things that we can relate to and you know i was saying earlier on how i'm slightly judgmental of people when i've recommended my favorite books and you know when you recommend a book like that particularly one that you've got such a strong affection for are you always is it just a kind of interest to see how other people react to it and whether they have the same kind of reaction as you have yeah i think part of it when you recommend a book is you're, you're always hoping that person is going to have the same sense of thrill when they read it that you did and then if that doesn't happen you can feel oh a bit sad you know <laughs> But you have to accept, as I said earlier on, that people do have different reading tastes. And I know people have come to me with recommendations of things that they've loved and they just leave me cold. Sometimes it could just be a matter of the wrong book at, the, at that particular time. I'm not ready for it. But often it, it's just not a subject that appeals to me. Do you find that a lot of people, given your, your interest in books and, and all the things you're doing in terms of your book blog, that people do come to you? friends or family looking for recommendations I don't think they do maybe they're afraid that I would kind of overload them you know with too many but it but it comes up you know if I go out with a walking group or something there's quite a few of us there are big readers and we're always sort of chatting about oh have you read this one or well what about that so we get into it that way around I think because it was great when we were corresponding prior to doing this podcast and it made me laugh actually when you were saying how if you're out and if you're in a cafe, for example, and somebody's sitting reading a book, curiosity gets the better of you and you'll go over and you'll, you, you want to find out what they're reading, but then you want to have a chat with them, which you must get some strange reactions sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I can be sort of sitting in the waiting room of a you know, GP surgery or dentist or whatever, and I see somebody, I'm, you know, I kind of turn in my head on the side, trying desperately to read what the title is on the spine. Of course, it's frustrating now when people have got e-readers and devices that you can't do that <laughs> but generally I found that if you just make contact with that person and just ask them things I haven't had anybody reject that so I, I don't know whether it's something about people who read they are more kind of open to conversations with strangers yeah and I suppose you're coming at it from a good place as well of just like a fellow reader and lover of books yeah I mean and you know you you don't have to kind of ask a question that's in any way judging what they're reading just saying oh what are you reading or oh, what you know is it good would you recommend it so it's kind of like neutral territory then yeah actually I was wondering that whether you just looked at the book and then went up to them and said you're not reading that are you <laughs> sometimes I, I have been tempted to but kind of <laughs> it up. But, you know, more often it's kind of I'm sitting in those environments looking around me and I'm seeing other people and they're not reading anything and I just want to shout out why haven't you got a book to read? How can you sit there for two hours or whatever it is and not have anything to read? Yeah, they'll all be on their phone, of course. 
Well, some of them don't even do that. They're just staring into space. I mentioned, obviously, the, the reason or the motivation for starting your book blog, which was this idea that you wanted to read all of the Booker Prize winning novels, going back to the very first one in 1969. I'd mentioned it's something that I, it's on my list of things to do, and I'm working my way slowly but surely through it. How did you find that experience? Because obviously it spans a lot of years, a lot of different tastes and, and what was perceived to be prize winning literature from 1969 through to 79, 89, etc., right up to the, to the present day. Was it, was it an enjoyable project to do? Or did it at times think, oh, why on earth have I started this? It was enjoyable sometimes, but there were some books that I really felt were a slog. I read 50 in total. And I think there were four that I just absolutely could not finish. You know, and I've, I've come to the view over the years that if I'm absolutely not enjoying a book, then why bother to continue right to, to the end? So I gave up on The Finkler Question by Howard Jacobson, which was a kind of particular Jewish sense of humour that didn't work for me. And the book just seemed really, really long. And my absolute failure, because I couldn't even read past page 20, was The Famished Road by Ben Ockrey. And it had magical realism, which is not my thing at all. And I read 20 pages and I thought, I have no idea what this book is about. It just seemed gibberish. <laughs> so, okay, that one could go. Well, if you tried. Well, I tried, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, and then there, there were some, like we were saying earlier on, about the ones from the early years of the Booker Prize. They were kind of a bit dull, I thought. Nothing particularly wrong, but they, you know, they were great books. And when you think about that the Booker Prize is supposed to represent the greatest novels in that particular year or over the period of time, I kind of look at it and think, was that really the best they could do that year? It's such a subjective thing anyway. And there's probably a lot of novels that are, dismissed because they're not seen as being of that kind of literary quality obviously Scotland's still we're still basking in the the glory of having the current Booker Prize winner on Douglas Stewart with with Shuggy Bain who, who he'd previously been on the podcast and I absolutely love that book is it possible for you to choose your favourite out of all the the Booker Prize winners that you read you you want me to choose one favourite I've, oh. I've, I've asked you so many difficult questions what's another difficult <laughs> question for you I know I ended up with 10 favourites. If I had to narrow that down to... It may not. I mean, you can listen to the answer. It could be, no, it's not possible, Paul. <laughs> well, I think there were a few that I thought were head and shoulders above the others. So I mentioned one, the, um, the Richard Flanagan, The Narrow Road to the Deep North. That one really, I thought, was exceptional. Bring Up the Bodies by Hilary Mantel just because it was such a different way of tackling historical fiction. As I said earlier, it was my kind of favourite period. But I also really loved The Remains of the Day. So yeah, I, as I said, I've got about 10. <laughs> yeah. I suppose it's, it's such a, I mean, it is a difficult, I know it's a difficult question, but I mean, it's a, I, as I say, I, it's only a, an audio podcast, but I did point out to you the wee shelf over my shoulder with all the, the Booker Prize winners that I'm slowly but surely chipping away at. I wasn't sure whether to read them. I had started off reading them in chronological order, but I've obviously read a few over the years as and when they've come out. So I'll get there eventually. Well, that, that's what I did. I started chronologically too. And I'd already read some of them in advance. But after a while, I kind of stopped doing that. and just thought, no, I'm going to read what I feel like reading at that particular time. 
So I hopped around. Well, of course, invariably it meant that right towards the end, I had about four books left that I was thinking, oh, I don't really want to read any of these. <laughs> if I can take you from the book that you would recommend to anyone to a book that you couldn't be paid to read again, and you've, you actually gave me a couple of choices, and it's quite interesting. One of them is uh, a Booker Prize winner, Salman Rushdie's Midnight's Children, and the other one was The Watchmaker of Filigree Street by Natasha Pooley. And interesting when you had mentioned both of them as books that were prize winners. Um, I think the Betty, was it Betty Trask first novel award for The Watchmaker. I thought you made a really interesting point when we were corresponding that just because books are, you know, either sell a lot of copies or have won awards, again, it's still a subjective thing. It doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's going to enjoy them. It does. I mean, just because it's on a list doesn't mean that it is for, for everyone. And some of the books that are, are appearing on bestseller lists now, they seem to be coming from authors who've done creative writing programs. And I think you can detect some of that influence. So to me, they tend to be overwritten as if they're being told that, well, you have to use lots of adjectives or you have to have dual or even triple timelines. And it's becoming a little bit too much of a, almost like a trick, if you like. So I don't, I don't kind of not read a bestseller, but I don't use that to guide what I am going to read either. Because obviously that trick doesn't work. It's a bit like the magician. If, if you've figured out how the trick's done, then it, you don't enjoy it anymore. So obviously if you're reading those books and you're kind of seeing those things and detecting those things, then that's not working really, is it? No. But plus I think the other thing that I, I pick up a lot is that so many books seem to be written as if the author's got one eye on it being adapted for, for TV or film. You know, you can kind of almost see like the trajectory with the big scenes and how that could be converted to the screen. And that kind of destroys the narrative often. That's a kind of slightly cynical way of approaching writing a book as well, isn't it? Because apart from everything else, there's no guarantee that your book's going to be turned into a TV series or a film. But as you say, if you have to focus, and anytime you read writers, the good advice they give you is just you have to just focus on the book you're writing. You can't think about anything else because then it distracts you from what you're trying to do. You know, and so many books are, are optioned for adaptation that actually never make it. Yeah, I kind of understand it because, you know, authors are not generally wealthy. You might have six books under your belt, but that doesn't mean that you've got a really good income. So if they see a possibility of having something adapted, which gives them even greater exposure, then, yeah, I wouldn't criticise them for, for going after that. You have to kind of put food on the table at the end of the day. The the other, you know, the Midnight's Children, which like, won the Booker Prize in 81, but also they've done a couple of them, I think, in 1993 and 2008, the best of the, the Booker, and mm-hmm. it won on both occasions. So I take it as one of the books when you did the, the Booker Prize project that you did finish, but that I couldn't pay you to read it again. I did finish it. It was through gritted teeth, really hard work. I admire it, you know. I mean, it was a tremendous achievement, because of the scale of the book, you know, he captures sort of like, what, 60 years of independence and turmoil in India and, and Pakistan. So this grand sort of scale of it, it was quite imaginative to, you know, to start the book with uh, the birth of someone right at the stroke of midnight, just as the new state of India is coming into existence. And then giving him these special powers and connecting with, with all sorts of children born at exactly the same time who all have these unusual powers. So there was lots of imagination there, but I thought it was 
there were too many digressions that made it difficult for me to actually follow what was going on. And I was just getting hopelessly lost in it. And plus, the other thing I really don't like is it had so many characters. I think there were about a hundred or so characters. So I, I, I could no longer keep track of who was who. It also made it hard for me to connect with any of them because some of them were just like walk on parts or, you know, you might find them mentioned on page 20 and then you don't come against them until page 100, by which time, who is this again? So yeah, admirable, but not enjoyable. Yeah, obviously I've still to tackle that. I did try once, I've never read anything by Salman Rushdie. I did try reading the Satanic Verses back in the day because I thought it was a thing you should do. And, and again, you know, would, you would read a page and then you would get to the end of the page and think, I have no idea what I have just read. And it was really, I was toiling. And at the time someone wrote in the, the Herald newspaper in Glasgow, a column, which was almost like a confessional, like the guy's name and said, I have to admit, I've never finished a Salman Rushdie novel. And they said, I feel better for telling you this and then explaining why that idea of like the, the classic coffee table books that should be seen, Satanic Verses was one of them. Also the idea of, you kind of touched on it earlier on of, you know, I, I don't know if we would have been taught when we were younger that you should always finish a book. If you start a book, you should always finish it. And I'm the complete opposite of that to that now. And it was so refreshing to read that column. So I cut the column out. I still have a copy of the Satanic Verses, but it's got that column inside it to remind me if I ever try to, to start reading it, not, not to bother. It doesn't say anything about me. I'm not kind of inadequate just because I can't finish the time first. <laughs> exactly. Every kind of reader should actually have something like that on their bookshops. You know, it's not you, it's that book. Because I think as well, and again, you mentioned it earlier on, which is for me the crucial thing about books is the reading should be something that's done for pleasure. Now, some books might be easier to read. Some books you need to spend a, a vast bit more time. They can be more difficult, but at the end, it's worth it. Some books are just not for you, for whatever reason, whether you don't enjoy it or whether it's just not the right time. So why force yourself through the misery of something that should be enjoyable? Yeah, I think, you know, there, there are some books which you might have tried to read and you didn't really enjoy, but then you try them maybe 10, 15 or so years later and they somehow click. And that's what happened to me with Jane Austen because I read her when I was, you know, young teens type of thing. Yeah, it was okay, but I don't see what the big fuss is about. And I kept hearing all these comments about, oh, you know, Jane Austen's wit. And I don't find them very witty at all. But, I, you know, when I read them in my 30s, it was like suddenly clicked. Was, oh, now I get it. Because someone had said to me on a podcast recently, and I'm sure it was a book, it was either maybe not their childhood book, but maybe certainly the book as a teenager. And they've kind of almost been trying to read it in the different decades of their life because you will have a different reaction to the same book at different times, just simply because as you get older and your own personal circumstances change. And I thought that was a really interesting thing. I thought, I wish I had thought of that years and years ago. Yeah, that would be interesting. I know there's a project one blogger did where she was going to read a book for every year of her life and, you know, sort of think about where was she in her life and, and what that could have meant to her if she'd read it in that year. That's really interesting, actually, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's kind of, and then you can, you can kind of almost like see the development of the novel in a sense as you're developing as an individual. I was curious, you know, obviously you, the reading project and your blog started from wanting to read all the Booker Prize winners. You mentioned as well that whenever you were going to be travelling to a different country, you would ask people to recommend you a book. Mm -hmm. Is that always part of your kind of reading habits to have sort of wee mini projects or, or 
different types of reading over and above just taking books that you want to read? I do have a few. One of the things I've found is that if you start getting into the blogging community, there are just masses and masses of reading projects and events that you can participate in. They all sound great. You know, you could join in with a Spanish literature one month and Irish literature another and women's fiction another month. But what I found was that I got into too many of them. And then suddenly my reading was entirely based on, right, I've got to read this, got to read this, got to read this. And it was almost like a timetable. And it, it took the pleasure out of me. So, you know, I have reined back on, on some of those projects. I just made sure I finished the Booker one and I finished another one, which was to read 50 classics. So I'm now about five books away from finishing my Round the World in Literature project. So is that how many countries is that in that you've chosen to uh, read from? I've done 45. That's impressive. Some of the countries, it's just almost impossible to get books from, you know, some of the really small countries. Or if they exist, they're prohibitively expensive. So I've had to kind of pick and choose quite a bit. But yeah. And one of the things I've kind of found is that there's um, something called the Asimpote, I think it's called, book subscription service. And they're a publisher that specializes in finding and discovering books that they think need more of an exposure. They are typically books in translation. So I get one of those every month. I think that's a really interesting thing as well, just as you say, just to discover writers and books from other countries that otherwise you would never hear of. I've had them from Catalonia and Switzerland and Rwanda. So it, it really is worldwide. I mean, I think that's a, another great project idea. The last question, the last book choice for you in this podcast, Karen, is either the, the last book you read or the book you're currently reading. And again, you've given me two. The last book you read was The Spire by William Golding. And the book you're currently reading is The Madness of Crowds by Louise Penny. So I, I finished The Spire last night, which I think you can class it as a, yeah, I think you, you could say it was a classic. If you tell somebody what the plot is, it probably doesn't sound very interesting because it's about a project to build a spire on top of a cathedral in an English city. But what Golding does is he makes it a tale of, one man's ambition and kind of conviction in a sense that he has been specially selected to fulfill this project and that he will achieve it no matter what. And the problem is that he kept being told that this cathedral doesn't have any foundations. So if they try to put this 400 foot steeple on top of it, the whole cathedral could actually come crashing down. So it really becomes a battle of wills. So that's quite a, an exceptional book. And it is actually one I've reread. But then I've also just started complete contrast is um, it's a novel by Louise Penny. And, and she's a Canadian author who has a, a series of crime fiction books set in the region of Quebec. And this is, I think, book 17 in the series. And I came to it through another blogger's recommendation. But I started somewhere in the middle, then I've kind of gone back to the beginning. And I love it because of the setting. She creates this fictitious village called Three Pines, which is so small that you can't even find it on a map. But it's the kind of place that if ever a house came up for sale there, I want it. <laughs> because it's tiny, but it has everything. It has a second-hand bookshop. It has a bistro. And you know, once 
once there's a crime underway, that becomes their headquarters for where they all meet and you get to know what they're all eating and drinking. And you think, oh boy, please can I go there? And then there's got some great characters of, you know, a, kind of like a world-renowned poet who has a, a strange duck and some classy kind of painters as well. So the setting is great. But what you also have is her main detective is the head of homicide for the Quebec police. But he's not one of your typical detectives who has to have a fatal flaw, you know, like he's not a drunkard or anything of that or a broken marriage. You know, he's very happily married and a very thoughtful man. He's got his weaknesses, but he kind of recognizes them. And so woven into these books, you get a little bit of his philosophy of life and how he coaches his junior members of the team to kind of think like he does as well. It's really escapism, but in a thoughtful way. Because I think as well, anybody who's listening, especially if you do like crime novels or crime series, the fact that you mentioned that's now 17 books for someone then who then goes back to read number one and enjoys it. I mean, that's a whole treasure trove of books they can work their way through. And I think she was kind of clever because, you know, the first few books set the scene very well, you know, and introduced this whole community of people and and the location. By the time you get to about book six, I think, you start to realise that there are pressures upon him and there's somebody who wants to do everything they can to get rid of him, even if that means causing his death or something. So there's this big conspiracy that lasts for several books afterwards and just builds and builds and builds the tension. And then you get to a point where that kind of role he has has to change. I can't explain why, otherwise I spoil the secret. And you think, well, what's she going to do now? I can't see how she can continue with this series. But she finds a way of, of giving him a new role, of breathing new life into the whole series. She stopped writing it for a while, a few years ago, because her husband, that she was very, very close to, and you know who she used to read the books to, and they'd talk about the plots, and he died suddenly. And she just couldn't face writing again. So it was, it was great that you came back from that. Interesting as well. There's a book coming out later this year, State of Terror, that she's writing with Hillary Clinton. And really? Oh. Yeah. I've discussed this in one of the podcasts before. It was all to do with celebrity writers. So my guess is that Hillary Clinton will provide inside information of how American government works and her name. And the Louise Penny will actually do the writing. That's my guess. Well, I suppose it was partly based on the, the hookup that Bill Clinton had, isn't it? It was with Patterson. James Patterson, yeah. Um, so oh, that's no, due, I think, October that. this year, that's due. Well, the one I'm reading now is due out in August in the UK. You know, I, I'm asked you already about book projects that you do. Do you have an idea of what you're going to be reading next? Or is, is there a, a list of books or a pile of books and you just, whatever catches your eye when, when you're feeling a particular way? I kind of constantly swerve from one to the other. So there is, there's a reading project that actually just started today. It's going to run through the whole of the three months for the Northern Hemisphere. And it's called 20 Books of Summer. And the idea is that you make a list and you read these 20 books. Well, I've tried it for several years and I've never managed to read the 20. Half the fun is putting the list together. And then you kind of read it. Oh, I don't really fancy reading that now. So you just sort of swap it out. So this year, what I've done is said, right, I'm going to put a list of 30 books together and I'll just choose from those randomly. So all I did was I went to my bookshelves and I picked out one book for each letter of the alphabet according to the author's surname. And said, right, that's my list of 30. Plus, that's as good a way of choosing as A, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I'm not starting at A 
I'm going to read through until I go again. We're just going to look at the list of 30 and think, oh, what do I feel like today? And the books, can be any books, there's not a theme to them or anything? No, some, some people do have a theme. You know, some people use it to complete a project, you know, could be all the crime fiction novels on their shelves or something like that. Or it could be all the new books that they've borrowed, uh, that they've acquired from NetGalley or from publishers and feel guilty that they haven't got around to reading. It's not a project that's got fast rules to it as well. Which makes it more enjoyable, I suppose. Absolutely, yeah. And then, of course, you get a great fun from reading what everybody else has put on their lists. The other thing I was going to ask you, given the fact that you obviously started the book blog, you read all the time. Have you ever wanted to write your own books? I came up with some ideas years and years ago. And I, I did do a creative writing course, having kind of made some comments <laughs> <laughs> earlier on. Yeah, the problem was, uh, you know, that kind of old adage about write what you know. And, you know, have some people don't believe in that at all. Well, my idea of my book really did show that you did need to, to know what you were talking about. <laughs> because I had this great idea and it was going to be set in a biosphere with these scientists who've been put into this kind of capsule to, you know, learn how you could have a more sort of self-sustaining community and environment, if you like. And then they were all going to be released at the end of this period. And so there's going to be a big tarar and fuss about it. But then on the day of, the, of this, they all decide they're not coming out. They're going to hold the government to ransom until they improve their environmental legislation, etc. But then I realised I knew nothing about how these people would live in this biosphere. <laughs> so that kind of came to an end. Do you know, I, I've, got a, I've got a great idea from probably, probably the, the next book that I'll write, and it's actually just a, a list of, it'll just be uh, a synopsis of all the great ideas for books that I've never written. All the books I've never known. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and actually, there could be a market for that, you know? Yeah, because I think there's more chance of that than, than actually finishing any of the ideas I've got. So. Yeah, me too. So No, I think I, the more I interact with authors, the more more and more respect I have for what they do and you know how much dedication it takes to actually take an idea and go right through to the end with it never never say never yeah okay (laughs) (laughs) right well that's that's more or less saying never but um sadly Karen we have just about run out of time for the podcast if anybody wants to check out your book blog it's www.bookertalk.com that's B-O-O-K-E-R talk, all one word, dot com, or you're on Twitter at Booker Talk as well. I have to say it's been a real pleasure having the first guest on from Wales on the podcast today. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. I really enjoyed our conversation. And uh, yeah, look forward to, well, I'm not sure what I should say I'm looking forward to hearing it because I know I've been rambling. So <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be fine. It'll sound magical. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.